0: Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Throughout the last few months, I have brought you stories about various scary serial killers. The ones that lurk in the woods behind your house while you get ready for bed and then snuff out their victims while they sleep people like BTK or Canadian Colonel Russell Williams. I've also brought you the likes of lady serial killers that kill their victims before everyone's eyes and no one notices until it's too late. These serial killers include Reda Maze and Judy Buenuano. But today I am bringing you a very gruesome and demented serial killer that tortured his victims in cruel and unusual manners before killing them and dumping them like litter on the side of the California highway. Not one to shy away from decapitations, rape or mutilations, this serial killer went unstopped far too long. Just a warning that this episode is hard to listen to. It involves brutal, I mean brutal descriptions of rape and murder and of people getting things shoved where they should never be shoved. So with this warning, this episode is not for the faint of heart. If you listen, do not, I repeat, do not send me messages about how gruesome the crimes I describe are. So listener beware. Join me today as I discuss the crimes of serial killer Randy Kraft, also known as California's scorecard killer. Now let's dig in. Shout out to Sloan from Killer Queens for researching and writing this episode. Sources for this episode include articles found in the Orange Coast, L.A. Times, Murderpedia, RandyCraft.com, Patch.com, and an opinion by the California Supreme Court. The setting is 1983 in warm California. In the wee hours of May 14th, 1983, Police in Mission Viejo, California, saw what is probably a pretty typical sight for 1 a.m. on a Saturday, a car weaving in and out of its lane. Suspecting a drunk driver, police attempted to pull over the brown 1979 Toyota. However, as they turned on their lights, the Toyota driver straightened up and tried to drive in its lane. But the driver did not immediately stop, instead driving about a quarter of a mile before finally pulling over. While pulling over, officers could see the driver reaching in the back seat and pulling something to the front passenger seat. Once on the side of the road, the driver did what one would consider a big no-no today. He got out of the car and began walking to the police car. The man's pants were unzipped, but he was polite and soft-spoken, so it didn't create anything of a frenzy. The officers took the man to the side of the road and they gave the man a field sobriety test, which he promptly failed. Officers walked the man back to his car and they actually saw another man in the passenger seat that appeared to be asleep. The police figured that he was probably just drunk or passed out. But when police tried to wake him, the passenger was unresponsive. But he wasn't just unresponsive. He was dead. The young fella had a jacket over his lap, which the police removed to find that the man's pants were pulled down and his genitals were exposed. The passenger also had marks on his wrist as though he had been tied up at some point. The driver, seeing as the police were stumped, began to talk. He told officers that the man was a hitchhiker he had picked up. And then the driver asked, how's my friend? The cop was like, what in the world is going on? So, of course, they detained the driver while searching the car. And what they found left them baffled. Had they just literally stumbled upon a serial killer? Inside the car was a huge buck knife sitting on the driver's seat, bottles of prescription medication, and hidden under the floor mat, they found 47 color pictures. Upon closer examinations, the pictures were of young men, naked and either sleeping, unconscious, or later determined to be dead. They further found a briefcase with a list of sorts. This list contained 61 entries. But reading the entries made no sense. It was almost like it was in code words. Later, however, the list would be determined to list 61 individuals that this driver murdered. What in the world? Well, today's passenger was Terry Gambrell, the driver's last known victim. Terry was a 25-year-old Marine corporal stationed at Marine Corps Air Station at El Toro. This young man was engaged to be married, so he had a lot of life to live. On this day, he had left a softball game and was hitchhiking to a housewarming party. And remember, this is the early 80s, so hitchhiking was a big thing back then, especially in California. Well, it was unfortunate for Terry because that's when he was picked up for this ill-fated ride. Once in the car, the driver offered Terry a beer. Unbeknownst to Terry, the driver had laced the beer with something that rendered him unconscious. It was then that the driver strangled Terry with a belt, snuffing the life right out of the young Marine. That morning, police arrested the driver, later revealed to be 38 year old Randy Stephen Kraft, a serial killer later dubbed the scorecard killer. <laughs> Randy Stephen Kraft was born on March 19th, 1945 in Long Beach, California, to Harold and Opal Kraft. Randy was not only the youngest of four kids, but he was the only son. And as the only son, he was the apple of his mother's eye and his big sisters adored him. However, for whatever reason, Harold Kraft was less enamored with his son. He tended to prefer his daughters and his wife to his little boy. Growing up, Randy Kraft was clumsy and accident prone. At just a year old, he actually fell off the couch and broke his collarbone. At age two, Randy took a tumble down a flight of stairs, knocking him unconscious. He was taken to the hospital and it was determined that there was probably no long-term damage. When Randy was three years old, the Kraft family moved from Long Beach to Westminster in Orange County, where his parents both worked and they made a good living for their family. Eventually, they built their own three-bedroom home and created a comfortable life for the family of six. When Randy Kraft was in school, his mom was an ever supportive and active presence. She was on the PTA and she baked cookies for Cub Scout meetings. She was also active in the church and she made sure that her children grew up with a strong sense of religion. In all reports, Randy was an exceptional student. His grades were impressive and he was even entered into the more challenging classes once he was in middle school. Randy kept up his good grades and also became very interested and passionate about conservative politics. By the time that Randy reached high school, all of his sisters had married and moved out of the home, meaning that Randy spent a lot of time at home alone after school because his parents were working. Well, this allowed him to become pretty self-sufficient early on. He was working part-time jobs here and there, and he even spent his own money to get the things he wanted. On top of holding down part-time jobs, Randy maintained his high grades and he was quite the social butterfly often being called an overall joyful kid. Randy was quite the extracurricular activity junkie. He played saxophone in the band, he played tennis, and he created a conservative politics club. He graduated from high school in 63 and was in the top 3% of his class. He even earned himself, get this, an impressive full scholarship to Claremont's Men's College. But by the time he was ready for college, Randy had been dealing with some internal struggles. You see, he had figured out that he was gay and he secretly began going to gay bars, but he had not yet come out to anyone. So he decided to keep his little secret until the moment was right. Kraft went off to college and he studied economics and continued to support the conservative political candidates and views that he'd grown up with. He would attend some pro-Vietnam War demonstrations and worked on the campaign for Barry Goldwater's Republican presidential run in 64. Randy also enrolled in the ROTC program. However, Randy's conservative political views would soon shift dramatically to the left. He would later claim that his conservative views early on, they were brought on by his father's beliefs and his views. In Randy's eyes, his liberal left wing shift was much more accepting of his sexual orientation And with this change, he not only changed his political affiliation to Democrat, but he also grew out his hair and he grew out his mustache. Another big change in college is that Randy began openly dating men. Though Randy would bring men to his parents' house, they were oblivious that these men were not just Randy's guy pals. Two years into college, Randy was hitting his stride. He was comfortable in the man he had become, and he began a part-time gig at a gay bar. On top of his new job, he began to frequent Huntington Beach looking for male sex workers. But eventually he screwed up when he tried to hire a male sex worker that turned out to be an undercover cop. Oops. The officer rebuffed Randy's advances and identified himself. And boom, Randy was not only busted, but he was arrested. Luckily, this was Randy's first offense and he was released without charges. Randy, while now a Democrat, he was still very much into politics, and he began to support Robert F. Kennedy, and he worked on his presidential campaign. In fact, his work and passion for RFK didn't go unnoticed, and Randy got a personal letter from the presidential candidate. Randy was reportedly devastated when this Kennedy was assassinated. Randy was also dealing with some medical issues at the time. He had been suffering stomach pains and headaches. And due to this ailment, he had been prescribed painkillers and tranquilizers, which Randy would promptly take with beer instead of water or juice. One of the prescriptions was for Valium, and Randy began to abuse this drug quite frequently. It's at this point when he combined drinking, prescription drug abuse, and trolling for sex workers that Randy's college academics began to slip. It was later discovered that Randy not only enjoyed the company of sex workers, But he also began to explore bondage. Randy, though, he had this thing that he did that his roommates noticed. Randy was really good at the disappearing act, meaning that his roommates recalled that sometimes Randy would just leave his place. He'd be gone for a few days at a time only to reappear and lock himself in his room for a few additional days. He never told his roommates what he was up to, but they figured whatever he was doing, he didn't want anyone knowing about it. Well, when you combine all of this, it's not surprising that Randy did not finish college on time. Instead, it required an additional eight months for him to get his diploma. And I should note that apparently he didn't finish ROTC because promptly upon graduating from college, he enlisted in the Air Force. Randy eventually made it to the rank of Airman First Class, and he was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base in California, where he supervised the painting of test planes. It was at this point in his life that Randy began to be more confident in his sexuality and he actually came out as gay to his family. Harold, his father, was pissed and Opal, his mom, she wasn't too keen on the idea either. However, despite not really understanding her son's sexual identity, the mom, she was still affectionate and eventually the whole family was accepting of Randy's sexuality. Now, a quick side note. Harold, the father, he was accepting in that he let Kraft still be his son and allowed him to still come to the house. But he wasn't completely accepting, instead choosing to ignore that part of his son's life. However, the Air Force was much less accepting, especially at this time. In 1969, Randy told one of his ranking officers that he was gay and well, they initiated discharge paperwork eventually forcing Randy out of the military for medical reasons. Now, Randy would later call baloney as he knew full well why he was actually being discharged. He was being discharged for homosexuality, not for medical reasons. After the military, Randy went back home and he began working part time at his bartending gig at Broomhilda, a local establishment, and also he got another part time job driving a forklift. But Randy struggled with a diet of speed and beer, and he lost a lot of weight during this time. After two years of grinding day in and day out, Randy decided he wanted to go back to school and obtain a teaching license. And he enrolled at Long Beach University. This is where he met Jeff Graves. The two men hit it off and they moved in together. Their relationship wasn't based on anything more than sex, though. And after four years, they called it quits. It was during these years and the following years that he lived on and off again with roommates and partners that his usual disappearing act became more and more evident. This time, though, when leaving, he'd mumble something about going down to look for Marines. His roommates would later recall that Randy was, quote, a very anal retentive kind of guy, very uptight and very strict with himself, end quote. But he was also remembered as having a, quote, volatile temper, end quote. This is all very interesting, right? Considering that in those years, Randy had been doing far more nefarious things than any of his roommates or partners could ever have imagined. In fact, when Randy was performing his disappearing acts, he was actually making other young men quite literally disappear from the face of the planet. Randy's first known victim was linked back to 1970, and you can say he was one of the lucky ones. It was a 13-year-old runaway named Joseph Alwyn Fancher. Randy and Joseph met on the Huntington Beach boardwalk while Joseph was riding his bicycle. Joseph approached Randy and asked him for a cigarette, and Randy gave the young kid one. Randy and Joseph were shooting the breeze just chatting when the young boy confided in the older Randy that he had run away from home. Randy, of course, could not give up on this perfect opportunity, and he invited Joseph to come stay with him for a while. Randy, of course, wanting to be the cool older man, was like, listen, come back with me and there you'll have tons of drugs and alcohol. And this sounded like a pretty sweet plan. So Joseph, the gullible 13-year-old, hid his bike and jumped on Randy's motorcycle. Back at Randy's place, as promised, Randy gave the boy some drugs, some unknown red pills. Well, the kid took four pills and then later he took four more pills, washing them down with wine. When Joseph was in a drowsy, almost a comatose state, Randy took advantage and asked Joseph if he had ever had sex with men. And then he directed Joseph to remove his own clothes. Randy showed the young boy images of men having sex and some of the images actually contained Randy in them. Randy then aroused himself and began to masturbate as he forced the young boy to perform oral sex on him. Joseph attempted to resist, but he was so drugged and he really just couldn't defend himself. Randy then sodomized Joseph. And then after he was done, he got dressed and left for work, leaving Joseph alone in the apartment. Joseph, though, had the presence of mind to get to his feet stumble out of the apartment and across the street where he went to get help at a bar. Now, police soon arrived, but Joseph was in no state to talk. He was rushed to the hospital where his stomach was pumped, and thankfully, he survived. It was then that Joseph told police that he had been drugged, but he left out the sexual assault part. That part wouldn't come out until years later. Joseph did bravely lead the police right to Randy's doorstep. And it was then that police searched Randy's house and they found illegal drugs. Not only that, but they found 76 pictures of Randy having sex with other men. And while it would seem that this was the end of the road for Randy, turns out the search was conducted illegally without a search warrant. And so Randy remained a free man. Years later, I'm sure that police would regret this huge mistake as Joseph, like I mentioned earlier, was one of the lucky ones. And at this point, the body count begins. In late September 1971, a 30-year-old bartender by the name of Wayne Joseph Duquette vanished. He worked at the Stables Bar, a bar in Sunset Beach located right next to the Broom Hilda. Wayne's disappearance was a mystery since his car was discovered in the very parking lot where he worked. But there was no sign of Wayne until two weeks later, on October 5th, 1971, when Wayne's decomposing body was discovered next to the Ortega Highway, he had died of, quote, acute alcohol intoxication, end quote. But Wayne's case stumped everyone and eventually it went cold. A year later, in 1972, another young fellow died in an even more mysterious manner, 20-year-old Edward Daniel Moore, a Marine stationed at Camp Pendleton, while he was last seen alive on Christmas Eve. Two days later, at 1.45 p.m., Edward's body was discovered on the 7th Street off-ramp from the 405 and 605 freeways. It was evident that Edward had been thrown from a moving car after being bludgeoned and strangled to death. Edward was wearing a jacket, a T-shirt, sweater, pants with no belt and boxers with his name and oddly the name of someone else. They were stenciled on the back of these boxers. Edward had one sock on his foot. He had been bitten on his genitals and one of his socks was found in his rectum. The autopsy determined that Edward had been hit in the face with a fist or some other blunt force object before his death, causing damage to his nose and lips. Edward had been identified through fingerprints and the time of death had been found to be a few days before his body was actually found. The cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation by strangulation. His blood was tested and it was found that he had no drugs in his system and only trace amounts of alcohol. And then this case soon also grew cold. And while Randy's first few known victims appear to be spaced apart by lots of time. This is when he picks up the pace. Six weeks after Edward's body, another body is found on February 6, 1973. This body has never been successfully identified, but the 18-year-old-ish John Doe, we're going to call him John Doe Number 1, he shared many similar hallmarks to Edward Moore. He was found on the side of the Terminal Island Freeway in the Wilmington area of Los Angeles. He had also been strangled only a day or two before his body was found, and more telling was the brown sock that was later found in his anus. In April of that year, two more bodies were found, and both were unable to be identified, but they shared similarities to the bodies of Edward Moore and John Doe Number 1 that was found in Terminal Island. One John Doe, who I'll call John Doe Number 2, he was found in an area of Huntington Beach known as airplane hail around 1 a.m. on the 14th of April. He was fully dressed except for his socks and shoes, and he had been spotted by a passing motorist who called the police. His genitals had been removed and there were ligature marks on his wrist. When determining the cause of death, it was hard to determine if it was from blood loss or the asphyxiation that inevitably killed him. It was noted that there were marks on his mouth from a gag but this, since his privates were removed anti-mortem, meaning before the time of death, and it cost him about two pints of blood, the blood loss was a significant contributing factor to his death. John Doe number two's lips and nose were bruised as well, and this all occurred before death. After his death, he was cut with a sharp object and then pushed from a moving vehicle onto the side of the road where he was eventually found. This was evident from the road burns on his body. No identification was found on him, but he was estimated to be between 18 and 25 years old. He had been drinking and his autopsy revealed that his blood alcohol level was measured at 0.07 percent. The other John Doe, John Doe number 3, well, he was found and he had been mutilated and dismembered. His torso was found at Alameda and Henry Ford Avenue in Wilmington. His arms were found on Terminal Island Freeway in Long Beach, and his head was found at 7th Street and Verdando Avenue, and his left leg was found behind Broom Hilda. Again, there were ligature marks, but there was something slightly different about his body. It was reported that the body had apparently been refrigerated before it was scattered throughout California, and the hands of this body have never been found. Then on July 30th, 1973, at about 6.30 a.m., the body of 20-year-old Ronald Weeb was found on the 7th Street on-ramp to the San Diego Freeway. Weeb was from Fullerton, and he had left his mom's house in Los Alamitos around 8.30, p.m. on Friday, July 27th, 1973. He was last seen at the Sportsman Bar while out for the night. And when he vanished, his car was discovered, you guessed it, in the bar parking lot with a flat tire. Weeb's body had been redressed after he was killed, except his belt, right socks, and shoes, as usual for the murderer. His pants were undone and his genitals were exposed. His right sock was later found stuffed in his rectum. Again, this was the killer's signature. Like those before him, Weeb had also been pushed from a moving vehicle causing road burns, but he had been murdered first by ligature strangulation about two days before his body was found. It was also later thought that he was likely bound and hung upside down before he was murdered. There were bite marks on his stomach and penis as well. A little over four months later, on December 9, 1973, the body of 23-year-old art student Vincent Cruz Mestas was found in a ravine in the San Bernardino Mountains. He, too, had been redressed except for socks and shoes, and one of his socks was, you already know where it was, and there was something about the size of a pencil that had been forced into his penis before he was murdered. Mestas had had his face shaven, and his hands had been severed. Then the murderer put plastic sandwich bags over the ends of his now handless arms. He had been strangled to death as well. Mestas had last been seen by his roommate in their home three days earlier, only blocks from where Randy Kraft lived. Things were quiet for six whole months before the body of twenty year old Malcolm Eugene Little was found nude on June first, nineteen seventy four. When his body was found, he was propped up against a tree on the side of Highway 86, West of Salton Sea in Imperial County. Little had recently been unemployed and had arrived in California from his home in Alabama. And he was there looking for jobs as a truck driver. But he was now lying naked on the side of the road. What happened to him? His legs were spread open to highlight the fact that his genitals had been removed completely. And there was a branch from the tree forced six inches into his rectum. His cause of death, however, was strangulation like most of the other male victims. Less than a month later, 18-year-old Marine Roger E. Dickerson was found off of a dead-end road in Laguna Beach near a golf course. Dickerson had been seen two days prior by his fellow Marines from Camp Pendleton when he started hitchhiking to Los Angeles from San Clemente. He had bite marks on his penis and hip and had been sodomized before he was strangled to death. Thomas Paxson Lee was 25 years old when his body was found on August 3rd, 1974, and he was discovered by oil field workers in Long Beach. He had been working as a waiter and known to some as a, quote, gay hustler, whatever that means. His body was found fully dressed and manually strangled. Just nine days after Lee was found, the body of 23-year-old Gary Wayne Cordova was found beside the highway in South Orange County. It was determined that he died from an overdose of alcohol and Valium. At first, neither Thomas Lee nor Gary Cordova were linked with the rest of the cases because despite being found discarded like the rest, they were missing many of the signatures that the police had come to link with the rest of the dead bodies they were finding. On Thanksgiving 1974, 19-year-old James Dale Reeves was out painting the town red when he vanished. He was openly gay and he liked bar hopping at many of the same bars as many of the other victims. His body was found naked except for a t-shirt covered in blood. Like the body of Malcolm Little, James Reeves was found with his legs spread and a tree limp shoved partly into his rectum. 17-year-old John William Laras was in high school and he was on his way to a skating rink when he vanished in December of 74. He had been so excited because he wanted to try out his new skates that he had just got for Christmas. And he was at the bus stop near the Ripples bar. He never made it to the skating rink, though. Instead, his body was found on January 4th, 1975, floating at Sunset Beach by people trying to take a peaceful walk. John had been suffocated and he had ingested alcohol at some point. He also had a wooden surveyor's stake shoved into his anus. Thirteen days later, on January 17th, 1975, construction workers were shocked to find the body of 21-year-old Craig Victor Joneides, who had been strangled to death. He was dressed except for socks and shoes. In fact, he was wearing two pairs of pants. It's hard to believe that the 14 men that I just described, that they were all killed in the span of four years. But it's true. It all began in October of 1971. And now we're in January of 1975. At this point, investigators have linked 12 of the above murders to one killer. And there were two others that were not yet linked. It's not until after four years, though, the detectives finally admitted that they were stumped and a task force was created. Now, it's hard for me to believe that it took four whole freaking years, 14 bodies for this to occur. But okay, whatever. But the team made up of some pretty intelligent people would come together to attempt to stop the murders, to basically catch the murderer. The task force created on January 24th, 1975. Keep that date in mind. It consisted of sheriff's officers from Orange County, Imperial County and San Bernardino County, police representatives from Los Angeles, Long Beach, Seal Beach, Irvine, and Huntington Beach and an FBI profiler from Quantico, a special investigator from the California State Attorney General's Office. And a few forensic psychologists from Santa Ana. The task force looked at all the cases, and while noting the similarities, they came up with no real leads to explore. Dr. E. Mansell Patterson from University of California, Irvine, proposed that the murderer was a man who, quotes, desires to be masculine but does not feel masculine knowing the nipples and genitals of his prey to symbolically make the victim a female." End quote. But while the task force collaborated and hypothesized, the murders continued for about 8 more years. In May of 75, the severed head of 19-year-old Keith Davin Crotwell was found near 72nd Street in Long Beach. Keith had been missing since March 30th of 75. Now, Keith and his 15-year-old friend, Kent May, they went to Big John's Fun Hall near the Belmont Pier in Long Beach. They had been drinking, even though they were kind of young, and they decided to take a stroll to a nearby seawall. The teenagers were talking about girls. Specifically, Kent was really worked out about a girl he had just argued with. And of course, they chatted generic teenager stuff, right? When, as they were walking, they were approaching Approached by Randy Kraft. Since that area was a known hangout for quote homosexuals, Kent asked Randy if he was gay. Now, Randy denied that he was and claimed that he was just enjoying the night air. Then he offered the young boys some drugs and got them to go to his Mustang. He gave the boys some pills that Kent said were printed with the number 10. Kent took six or seven what? Six or seven pills. And Keith took about 9 to 11 pills, which he promptly chased with beer. Oh, my gosh. Now, by this point, they were both in Randy's car and Randy drove off with the teens in the Mustang. Eventually, the effects of the drugs began to affect the boys and 15-year-old Kent lost consciousness. Now, at about 3 or 4 a.m., the teenager's friends who had been at Big John's also They came outside to look for Kent and Keith, who had wandered off hours earlier. In the parking lot of Big John's, the friends see this Mustang. The passenger door was open and Kent was being pushed out of the back seat. Now, Kent stumbled out of the car and the friends ran over to the Mustang to stop it because they were trying to get the other friend out. But Randy drove off quickly with Keith slumped over in his passenger seat. And the search for Keith would last close to two months. After Keith disappeared into the night into this strange Mustang, Keith's friends spent days scouring the area for that black and white Mustang he left in. It was eventually located and found to be registered to Randy Kraft. On May 19th, 1975, Randy was brought in for questioning by police about his relationship with Keith. And Randy told the police that he and the guy and he didn't know what the guy's name was. He was like, we were just wandering around. And after he dropped off the other guy, meaning Kent, the guy, meaning Keith, wasn't ready for the night to be over. So he drove off with Randy, which this is all a lie, right? Now, Randy said he let the guy drive his car around and then they got stuck. Randy walked to a gas station and turned out that the gas station was closed. So instead, he went to an all-night cafe. At this all-night cafe, he calls his boyfriend Jeff Graves and asks him to come help him. But while he's waiting for Graves, Randy got a cup of coffee and then he starts to realize that Graves' car isn't that great. So it's not going to be able to pull his car out. But there was a guy at the restaurant with his wife that had a truck. Bingo. So Randy told police that he asked this man for help in pulling his car out of the mud. The man agreed and they rode off in the man's truck. Now, Randy claimed that when they got to the car, the man he'd had with him was gone. The man helped Randy get his car out. And once it was out, Randy says that he took a little look see for his original passenger and not seeing him. He just returned to the cafe to meet up with Jeff Graves. Randy claims he never saw his passenger again, and he doesn't know what happened to him. At the time that Randy was brought in for questioning, Keith's body was still missing, so the Los Angeles prosecutor refused to charge Kraft with a crime. As far as anyone knew, Keith could have disappeared on his own. The interesting thing is that a few weeks before Randy was questioned on May 8th of 75, Two unfortunate little boys came across a skull about a thousand feet from the Big John's parking lot. But it would take some time to determine through dental records that the skull belonged to 19-year-old Keith Crotwell. The rest of his body, minus his hands, were discovered five months later in October, wrapped in a rug and stuffed in a pipe in Laguna Hills. And sadly, despite having left with Randy in Randy's car, Keith's death wasn't linked to Randy or the other murders until after Randy's arrest in 1983, eight years later. By the time of Keith's abduction and murder, Randy was working part time as a computer operator for Long Beach Airport. He was still struggling with migraines and stomach pains that had plagued him since basically all his adult life. On top of this, he was dealing with insomnia and a new diagnosis of hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. And in June of 75, Randy was arrested again for another lewd conduct charge, which landed him in jail for five days and cost him a whopping one hundred and twenty five dollar fine. It was around this time that Randy's relationship with Jeff Graves deteriorated beyond repair. Their four-year relationship was over before they could celebrate the 1975 holidays that year. Unrelated to his arrest and his breakup, Randy lost his job. The company was downsizing and he was laid off, but he was able to get another job with a consulting firm. But, you know, getting arrested, breaking up with a significant other, losing a job, starting a job. This is all for any person to handle. It was at this point, though, that Randy really began to process those feelings into more murder. But you'll have to wait until next time to hear more about Randy Kraft and his crimes that later earned him the nickname the Scorecard Killer. If you want access to part two right now, be sure to join the fan club at patreon.com slash military murder, where for as little as $5 a month, you get immediate access to part two, but you also get access to ad free episodes and various other bonus episodes that are just waiting for you to listen in. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my Bootcamp and Higher fan club members. Executive producers for this episode are Falcon 13, Nicole, Alicia, and Tina S., owner of Stitch 6-6 to Embroidery. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you more about Randy Craft next week. Working on our podcast.